0: We hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, podcast
1: listeners. My name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner who heads up the abuse team at Hugh James, and I'm joined by my colleague, Danielle Vincent. Hi, Danny. Hi, Alan. So in this podcast, we're going to deal with a mixture of subjects. But before we get into it, I have to give the health warning which is that obviously in this podcast we talk about sexual abuse and matters connected to sexual abuse, which at the best of times can be upsetting, disturbing and distressing and so on. So if you think you might be unduly upset or troubled by what we're going to talk about, then now's the time to switch off or go off and make yourself a cup of tea or whatever. So having given the warning, so to speak, let's get down to discussing what we're gonna talk about in this podcast, which is going to be a mixture of things because there's been quite a few interesting stories, to put it mildly, in the media over um recent days. And we've also had a question in from one of our Listeners in Jersey about medical records, but let's start off with what's in the news. I'm sure everyone has been watching and listening with interest. The Prince Andrew case. And I suspect many of our listeners will also be familiar with the High Court judgment that came out earlier in respect of the Manchester City football club case where the club had been sued by a number of victims of sexual abuse and failed. But first of all, let's catch up with the Prince Andrew case, because we dealt with that on and off in a number of podcasts recently. So the latest is that Prince Andrew's quest to have the case brought against him dismissed because Virginia Gaffray had entered into an agreement with Epstein some years ago, in which she said, basically, in return for accepting some of the money, I'm not going to bring any more cases. I think that's the simplest way of putting it. And Prince Andrew's lawyers were arguing that this agreement prevented her from suing the prince. So, at a superficial level, you can understand the logic of that argument, but it was not accepted by the judge in New York, who dismissed. The application, and I think basically there was several aspects to this. Danny, was there not? So there was, I think, the, the principal point was possibly the fact that Prince Andrew was not named specifically in the agreement, and secondly, he was not a party to That's the agreement. Right.
2: So we yeah. had a. Our listeners will know that we had a um, podcast that we discussed non-disclosure agreements and whether they're binding. But it seems every day that we turn on the news or we're reading about this case, it develops and develops and develops. So if podcast listeners are listening to this, we're talking about it at the current stage. But by the time it gets to being listened and published, we could be another complete different position I mean Mm. today's press is saying that Prince Andrew is going to be dealing with this as a civil person he's going to be paying the fees for this that are predicted to to run into millions and there's also the press that's been released today to say that there are I think it's between eight and ten other people that have been named previously but that the documents were sealed they are going to be the names are going to be released so it will be of interest because there's been so much fighting to keep these names quiet. I think they're going to be names that many of us will know. So it's the story that is continuing to rumble on.
1: It's a story that feeds more stories. And of course, we need to make the point that Prince Andrew denies any wrongdoing. And so the stakes are high for everybody, aren't they? He's, He's denying any wrongdoing on his part. Yet the plaintiff who is suing him is alleging that he's committed serious talks. That's what we're talking about, given it's a a civil case. So the stakes are high, you know. Um, She's saying one thing, and he's saying that, no, it didn't happen, but, you know, he's innocent. So it's difficult to see how that can play out without there being a trial. And there's talk of, you know, maybe they'll reach a settlement, but I don't see if both want to be vindicated how they can settle because...
2: Exactly. I mean, that's the thing is that We work in the legal industry, so we know that at times settlements are reached because of the legal costs and implications of running a case to trial may not be economical, but for the parties involved. But because this case has got so much press release, if, you know, Prince Andrew maintains his innocence, but then makes a private settlement, a lot of people, I think, will believe that he's paid because he's guilty, but he doesn't want to go to court. So... Hmm. It's a real difficult situation.
1: He may feel that he's up against a rock in a hard place.
2: We've seen this before. We've seen this with, you know, Michael Jackson years ago. You know, there were allegations of sexual abuse of minors and those cases settled. And again, it may have been because, you know, they didn't want the adverse press and the effect on his sales and endorsement deals that he had. But then people have always said, well, he paid out. Why did he pay out? So, it's it's happened before, hasn't it?
1: Yes. And of course, I haven't heard any more about the fact that it was said that a couple of the, you know, we've got this business with the Maxwell case in the background as well, because that, I suspect, isn't over either. So that's a, another story that sort of feeds into the story. And objectively, you think, well, if all this carries on, but if there is a trial, everybody in the courtroom is just going sort to of been been exposed to so many stories yeah. and so much coverage both parties are going to think, well can I actually be sure that I'm going to have a fair hearing you know because it is a you know a, a growing unusual situation to have all this coverage and you know it's not and as I said it's not just the one case you know you've got the Maxwell case in the background as well.
2: I think as well, when the other named individuals, you know, when these names are released, I think they will be potentially, you know, these people are going to be thrust into the limelight all of a sudden because their names will will go around, you know, the world. They're going to be in the newspapers. Is that there may be other survivors from assaults, perhaps by then, you know, we often see once somebody is named that other survivors come forward that, that didn't feel strong enough to come forward beforehand. But when they realize they aren't, you know, the sole abuse, they will come forward. So I think this whole link to Epstein and Prince Andrew, I I just believe that it's going to get bigger and bigger throughout 2022. I think we're going to be talking about it a lot.
1: You could well be right. So that then brings us on to another case that's been in the media, but to a much lesser extent, And that's the Manchester City case where victims of sex abuse sued the club. And even though the judge said, I accept your accounts, and of course some of the accounts have been tested in the criminal courts, the judge dismissed the case because the victims had left it too late to sue. And secondly, the judge went on to say that even if he was wrong to dismiss their case because they had left it too late, the club was not responsible for the abuser which is Ari Benall um you know who has been in and out of the news for his crimes frequently over the last couple of years yeah.
2: so um, I, this think one, I think it's important to say to any of our listeners that aren't aware who, who Barry Ari was he was a scout for a number of different clubs over many many years And there, as you say rightly, there's been many convictions for Barry Bernal because he scouted children into clubs, placed them, and then, you know, he was abusing them and using his position to say to children that he was going to get them places, you know, young boys that wanted to play football for these, you know, clubs that they idolized. So that was how he became involved and as you say the judge found that his role wasn't akin to employment effectively which you know we've discussed quite some length really because it's based on the facts of each individual case.
1: Yes it's very difficult you know and I think there's a lot of sympathy for for the victims because you know if you stand back and you think well of course this wretched man was employed by the club. He may not have, you know, had a salary or wage as such, but he was doing their bidding and and so on. But the judge, when he analysed the facts, he came to the opposite conclusion. So it's very sort of case and fact specific, I suppose. Yeah. We've seen yes. this
2: previously before, haven't we, with other cases involving employers? about it being very case and, and fact specific. So I think mm-hmm. if any of our listeners are listening, in, this is potentially going to put somebody off to still contact us or civil solicitors contact. to consider. I guess the other thing to say is at the time of this recording is that the cases are intending to be appealed so so that we've seen on you know social media so far so it may be that the decision perhaps will be overturned
1: but it's an interesting case because it's a reminder of the hurdles that victims have to overcome in order to succeed they have to honestly prove that their allegations are true and in this case that was accepted by the judge so yeah. number one prove the allegations are true and then if you're suing an organization you've got to prove that they are vicariously liable. In other words, employer responsible for the sins and misdeeds of the employee. So you've got to prove vicarious liability. Thirdly, you've then got to prove that you've suffered harm as a result of the sexual abuse. And fourthly, you've actually got to prove that it's fair, not just to you, but also to whoever you're suing, for the case to be brought in perhaps many years, as in this case, after the events complained of. And I think maybe you know, okay, the case may succeed on appeal. But leaving that to one side, I think one of the problems in this case is, is that some potential key witnesses were no longer around and it may well be that documentation that had been around was no longer available. And so it may well have been a different outcome had the judge had access to, you know, witnesses and um, to paperwork. You know, it may have been a completely different outcome. The judge would have felt more confident to allow the case to proceed out of time, and um, would then have gone on and been satisfied that the club was vicariously liable. You know, that's just speculation on my part, but that's the sort of feeling that I got from reading the judgment.
2: You know, we both face this difficulty very often with limitation: is that you know an individual is not going to be abused as a child and hit that 20-year-old mark and think, I need to bring this case before my 21st birthday. Many of the individuals that were involved with, with Barry Bernal came you know, out and disclosed again around the similar time. There was one person who bravely came on TV and said that he was abused. And then many, many others then came forward again, because a lot of these individuals thought that they were the only one. So we see it commonly that, you know, people don't come out for 20, 30, 40 years. In this case, that was one of the factors that, that meant that the case was unsuccessful. It's important to say, you know, we've both settled cases recently where they have been significantly out of time, 20, 30 years out of time, but the defendant has settled. So
1: Interestingly, in this case, in the banal case, you know, this Manchester City case, the judge, I think, was more or less saying, I would have allowed the case to... Go ahead, despite the lengthy time gap. Were it not for these evidential issues that trouble me, so that's actually from a claimant victim perspective. Actually, that's a good part of the judgment. That's actually very useful to know that you know the judge wasn't so much troubled by the length of time. Yeah. Uh, what was troubling him was the effect, and I think that's always got to be remembered. It's not the length of time is necessarily the big issue. It is the the effect that the time period has had. Whether it's one year or 20 years or 30 years, it's the, the net effect of what's happened to the evidence as a result of that delay, whether it be a big one or a little one. So I think from that perspective, the judgment's actually useful. And another aspect of the judgment is the level of damages that the judge would have awarded had the case succeeded. I think, you know, it was quite refreshing to see, you know, if you compare and contrast that the judge in this case would have awarded compensation to the victims way in excess of what we normally see in these sorts of cases. So, again, I think it's a useful judgment.
2: Yeah, and on that point, actually, of damages, because, you know, we we talked about that, you know, these were high figures from the judge is that the Man City had brought out a scheme and had these individuals gone along that scheme, their damages award would have been capped at at a much lower sum. So, you know, we've talked about pros and cons of schemes before. You know, we've never had anything really to compare it to before. But in this case, had those clients' cases been successful, they would have received much higher sums than, than the actual Man City scheme that had been brought out. Yeah.
1: Anyway, so it'll be interesting to see um, what happens if it is appealed and what the outcome is. I think final point is to make is that Barry Bernal was a, a as a scout and the judge said he, you know, this club was not going to be vicariously liable for him. Again, stepping back, I think it's always important to emphasise that in a lot of these situations it is not necessarily simple employer employing like education authority employing a teacher. We get these. Vague situations, and we have to look at the facts. We have to look and see whether actually was this a relationship that was similar to employer employee. Lots of religious organizations are always trying to argue that priests and members of religious orders are not employees, and the courts have routinely basically got fed up with those sorts of arguments and have routinely said this is employer employee. You know, the priest may not have a contract of employment, may not be on a PAYE salary or whatever it happens to be you look at the facts and you know religious bodies have routinely been held responsible for the sexual abuse committed by their clergy or you know people who are in some sort of position of responsibility in the religious organization and you look at the facts you know yes and there are cases where an organisation may not be responsible vicariously. And that's you know usually where the, the, the abuser is clearly an independent contractor, where they're running their own business, they're their own entity, so to speak. The now case here with Manchester City emphasises you've got to look at the facts. Yeah. So no one should be necessarily disheartened or walk away thinking that that case says you can't sue Football clubs or whatever.
2: Yeah, it's important that our listeners, you know, if you think that, that you've got a civil claim, it's always worth having a conversation with with us about it.
1: That's right. Anyway, the third and final matter that we're going to talk about is medical records, and this is a result of a question that's come in from one of our listeners. So, in abuse cases, medical records often feature because they contain evidence that points to perhaps reporting of abuse and very often the consequences of sexual abuse. So they're very often very important documents and medical records are private, they belong to the individual concerned or they're in the control of the um, individual concerned. And sometimes we get into something of a debate with defendants who want to see medical records perhaps as a matter of course. And I think we, don't we, Danny, sort of say, no, you're not entitled to our clients' medical records just because you want to see them. Not all defendants want to. Sometimes they're quite content to rely on a medical expert, a psychiatrist, to look at the records and report on them. Sometimes we get defendants and their lawyers insisting that they see the records. That can be something of an issue.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's at times... Yes, but then actually at times, you know, you speak with your client and if you've got a client that has disclosed to their GP about the abuse and, you know, that's a document that dates back a significant period of time, you know, we've just been talking about limitation and that supports our client's case, then sometimes these are supportive of the claim going forward.
1: Yes, we agree, but we don't simply hand over clients' records just simply because defendants want to see them because, you know, that can be an invasion of the the client's privacy. It may be a case that their rights under the Human Rights Act are being compromised. And I think a balance has to be struck. And then, you know, in in the vast majority of cases, a balance is struck and the clients are willing to allow defendants, solicitors to look at records subject to restrictions as to who exactly is going to see them and the purpose of disclosing those records.
2: Yeah and as you say you know if you've got a case where you've instructed your medical expert and as of course your medical expert will look at the records in order to provide a full rounded report for your client that expert will pull out the entries that are needs to be in the report so the defendant don't need to see it because they're going to be disclosed with a medical report.
1: Yeah and of course the concern is that defendant solicitors want to see the medical records because they want to trawl through them to try and find something to either discredit the, the client or to try and undermine their claim or to, to undermine, you know, what the psychiatrist is saying about them. So we are conscious of all of that. And that's why in particular, I'm a little testy with defendants and solicitors who say we want to see the records. And, uh, and you know, and I'll say, well, why do you want to see the records? Yeah. So, you know, they do have to be challenged and we're, I think, as a firm, very mindful that these records are confidential and they are private and they should only be disclosed when it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, I agree. Well, hopefully we've answered our listeners' question about that. So on that note, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Danny, as always. Please do tune in to our next podcast. And if you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions for future podcast topics, then please do get in touch. Thanks a lot. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk